Jeremy. You know, it's a weird feeling at this point, right? Somebody else always gets up and talks at this point in the service, right? And it's really weird when suddenly it's you. Um, thanks, Jeremy. You know, for 12 years we have been uh, here, and uh, uh, it's just been a really wonderful place to be, very affirming. Um, and so I appreciate that. People have really encouraged me as I told them I was going to preach. And, uh, well, almost everybody encouraged me. Um, but one thing that wasn't maybe so encouraging was realizing that I was slated to preach the day after people were predicting, predicting the rapture. Um, and, and so I wasn't quite sure what, what that meant, uh, that Jeremy had me lined up after he was going to be uh, up in heaven. But I don't think that's his theology anyway. So, um, And then the other thing that was uh, accidentally a little less than encouraging is a friend of mine had been promising to give me an article. Um, and uh, that's about, I'm toying with the idea of going to seminary. And, and uh, so he gave me a copy of this. I think it's Christianity Today. Uh, what he didn't tell me until he handed it to me just before I came up here to preach was uh, that the title of it is Don't Quit Your Day Job. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure what that means. Um, but, you know, it is, it is a blessing to be part of the church and to have had lots of ministry opportunities and be alongside some of you and have some of you be alongside us. You know, one, one instance of that was uh, some years ago, Jeremy asked me to spend time with a fellow who was trying to grow in his faith and he had a lot of questions. He was wrestling with things. And this particular fellow had something working against him. He had been uh, exposed to the teaching of a fellow named Harold Camping. You might have heard about him in the news lately, right? That's the fellow who predicted that in 1994 the world would end. And uh, he's 0 for 1 there. Actually, I don't, I don't even think that's the first thing he got wrong. Uh, and then he basically told everybody that they should leave the church because the church age had ended. Um, so he was teaching people to leave their churches. And then he decided, doing some careful math, or maybe not so careful, that uh, 7,000 years after the flood was May 21st, 2011, at 6 p.m. And uh, that came and went, and there weren't any earthquakes, and he was wrong. But he led people astray. And there are lots of people doing that, leading people astray. You know, there are 2 million people in southeast Massachusetts, by conservative estimates, that don't know the Lord. 2 million people that you could reach within an hour in your car. It's great that we're sending people to Africa, and that's really important. But we also need to send people to Duxbury and Hingham and Hull and everywhere in between, right? We need to reach our area for Christ. So we have work to do. Um, and and that's, that's what we're going to be studying today is what is our job? What, what's the ministry that God's given us to do? You know, one thing that he's, he's challenged us to do is to, to raise up more churches because you know what? If we reach all two million people, they would not fit. Even though that sanctuary in the new church is bigger, they're not going to fit back there, are they? And they wouldn't even fit in all the churches that currently exist in, in our area. So we need more churches so they can fit, but also so we can reach them. Church planting is a really important strategy for reaching the community for Christ because you start a new church and guess what they need? People to come. And so there is a drive then to have to go and share the gospel with people and do evangelism and invite people to church. So we need that. And you know what? To lead that, what do we need? We need leaders. We need, ouch, am I going to fall through a trap door here? Um, we need, um, um, maybe if I'm not doing good or something. Um, we, need, we need pastors and teachers. We need Sunday school leaders. We need elders. We need people to just be in churches, serving food, doing all the different roles. And that takes some training. So the passage we're going to study today talks about that. The idea of training leaders for churches and training members for churches and starting new churches to reach the whole South Shore, the whole world for Christ. 
Because there will really be an end someday. And we need to be ready for it by spreading the gospel. So we're going to study the book of 2 Timothy. You'll find it on page 1178 in your pew Bible. 2 Timothy, page 1178. This is a book that Paul wrote. We're going to take a break from the study of Deuteronomy. And we're going to look at this letter. Um, This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He was at the end of his ministry. He was in jail, chained to a Roman guard, anticipating his death at any time. Nero was really upset and things were going wrong and Paul anticipated that he was about to die. So he wrote a letter to his protege, Timothy, his young protege, to encourage him to keep the movement going, to keep spreading the gospel, no matter what would happen. And Paul wanted Timothy to really focus on that. So in his letter, he sets a tone of just really pouring out his heart. To Timothy. And that's what we're going to read today. And, and since we're kind of parachuting into this passage, I thought it'd be a good idea to read a little bit of the context before it. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and just read that first whole chapter. And I want you to listen as I read that for some clues as to what was going on as Paul is writing to Timothy. What was going on in Paul's life? What, what, what kind of resistance were they meeting in the ministry? Um, listen for Paul's heart and his gospel. So let me start reading. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. You feel Paul's love for Timothy? I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. Note that. Note where Paul got his faith from there. Verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him for that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Did you hear that? Everyone in the province of Asia has deserted Paul, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, though, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So many people have abandoned Paul. He's met with such opposition. His end is nearing. He's really wanting Timothy to keep the movement going no matter what happens. 
So now our study passage is going to be chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So I'm going to read that and then just a little bit, a couple of verses beyond. When you study the Bible, it's really important to have context, right? To know where you've landed, to see what's going on, to get your bearings. So chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you feel the sense of urgency Paul expresses? There's great opposition. He's in jail. He's expecting to be killed. And so he writes this last letter to Timothy to, to urge him to keep the movement going, no matter what happens. So we're going to see three main ideas as we focus on verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. First, we see, like Timothy, we need to be continually filled with Christ, with the grace of Christ, with the truth of Christ, with the love of Christ. We need to have God pouring into us on a regular basis. And we need to be filled so much that we overflow to others, that we're able to pass along that grace, that gospel, that truth, that hope to other people. Then the third point, we need to be also doing that to the point of being poured out, completely emptied. It's kind of a paradox. We're filled up all the time, and yet we're willing to be completely empty and spent. So those are the three points we're going to trace through this passage. So starting in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Look at the second word there. You then, my son. Why does Paul say then? Well, I'm pretty sure he's referring back to the stage that he just set in chapter 1 that there's a gospel to share, that there's hope, but there's an enemy, and many people will desert the cause. So Paul says, you, Timothy, they've all deserted me, but you, Timothy, you keep the faith, you keep going. You then, my son. And you hear the tenderness in that phrase, my son. Paul and Timothy had had worked together for 15 years or so, done a lot of things, seen a lot of things. Timothy had probably seen Paul getting stoned, left for dead. They had done a lot. Timothy had been sent out on some special missions. And Paul had poured into Timothy for 15 years for such a time as this, for when Timothy would have to carry the torch. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Or actually a better translation is be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's how the ESV and the NASB translate this verse, the more literal translations. Timothy is being told to receive strength from Christ to be strengthened, to keep drinking in the grace of Christ. Now, the grace uh, that he refers to there, what does he mean by that? Well, you remember in Ephesians 2 how Paul explains the gospel? What does he say? He says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This not of yourself, it's a gift from God. It's not by our works. We can't boast about it, right? By grace we've been saved. This is the basic premise of the gospel, isn't it? We're sinners in need of a Savior. And Paul is telling Timothy to continue to draw strength from the grace of Christ, from the gospel. It's kind of like an old cartoon I used to watch. Maybe you've seen it. Remember Popeye? 
right? There's a, there's scrawny old Popeye, and uh, and there's this big strapping Brutus guy, right? He's just gonna beat him up at any turn, and and uh, always after his uh, Popeye's girlfriend, uh, olive oil, I think it was, right? Um, and so you know, as the plot unfolded, time after time, things were looking ugly for Popeye, and then what did he do? What did he grab? Spinach. You all know it, right? He grabs that can of spinach and gulps it down at the last moment when all hope is lost. And then suddenly he's sort of the superhero guy, right? And he can do anything and he wins the day and he gets olive oil back. And, and day after day, this plot is the same, basically. But we watch it over and over again. Why? Because it's a cool story. It's, in a sense, the story of the gospel in a kind of a way, isn't it? That, that reaching for strength at the last moment and finding that strength in something, not necessarily spinach, although that would probably help us all out, but um, in the gospel, in the grace. Think about the grace of God, his, God's willingness to give his son for us. We didn't deserve any of that, but he did that for us. That's grace. So this kind of tees up the second point of our passage. We're filled up with that grace, with hope, with Christ. And then what do we do? Well, then we need to overflow it to someone else. We receive the gospel. We need to give the gospel. Why are we able to love? Because Christ first loved us, and we can love other people. Right? The great commandment. So how do we do that and what do we do? What's the strategy? So 2 Timothy 2, verse 2 says, And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So the things he's heard me say. What, what things is Paul referring to? Well, if you've read through the book of Acts, you'll remember that every time Paul stands up, what does he do? He shares the gospel. He tells people about Jesus. And he explains it in a way they can understand it. If he's talking to Jews, he explains how Jesus is the Messiah. And he, he helps them understand that he's the, he's the one that was predicted to come. If he's talking to some people, he tells them, oh, you have a statue to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you about that unknown God. But Paul always told the gospel. And that's what he's telling Timothy to do, to share the gospel. And what is Paul's gospel? We just read it, didn't we? Chapter 2, verse 8, Paul reminds us of the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Descended from David, meaning Jesus is the promised Messiah. Right? Raised from the dead. That reminds us that Jesus was killed on a cross for us, died for us, and was raised from the dead to conquer death and to make a way for us to go and be with God forever. So Paul's urging Timothy to pass this message on to many other people. In fact, to whole generations of other people. Take a look at 2 Timothy 2.2 and tell me how many generations do you see represented in that passage? How many are there? So it starts out with Paul. That's the my in the sentence. And the you, who's the you? You then, Timothy. So Paul training Timothy to do what? To speak to reliable men. That's the third generation. And, And is there another one? Others. So Paul passes something on to Timothy who passes it on to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. That's how the gospel spreads through generations, generations of believers. And, you know, this happens because faithful men and women are intentional about helping others hear the gospel and learn to follow Christ. So let me ask you this. Who discipled Timothy? What do you see? Who discipled Timothy? At first blush, we think Paul. But let's look a little closer. This is part of the reason I want to read chapter 1. Look back at chapter 1, verse 5. 
I have been reminded of your sincere faith, Paul says to Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. So let's not forget the role of this grandmother and mother. They were a Jewish family. And early on they taught Timothy the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. But then Paul came through on his first missionary journey. And he trained, he he preached the gospel. He was stoned there. Dramatic things happened. So part of how Timothy learned to follow the Lord was from his mother and his grandmother. Discipleship can start at home, can it? But another thing, after Paul was stoned and left for dead, he left town for a little bit and came right back and appointed elders in that town. What did that mean they had? They had a church. So Timothy was there in a church learning about the gospel, hearing it probably week after week, perhaps day after day. Timothy was discipled by his family. He was discipled by his church. And he was discipled by a visiting missionary named Paul. And um, those elders that were appointed, when, when in, in, in verse 2, when Paul says, reliable men who will be qualified to teach others also, that's the biblical definition of an elder. You can read it in Titus and in Timothy's letters. That's how Paul defined an elder. Pick reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. That's a key criteria for an elder. So Pastor Paul is telling Pastor Timothy to train other pastors and elders who will train other people. You see that? Now I want to look at the history for just a minute. So put a bookmark here in Timothy and turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts 16. You'll find it on page 1096 in your pew Bible. And I want to check out some of the history here. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. So this is telling us the history of of Paul's second missionary journey, actually. So Paul had been gone for a few years, and he comes back through Lystra, Timothy's hometown. And it says, He, meaning Paul, came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jew and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Do you see it? Timothy was in a church with elders that led him and brothers that knew him and saw his great potential. He was actually from kind of a broken home. He had a Greek father who didn't let him get circumcised, yet he was being raised as a Christian, probably a lot like some of our broken homes today where he had some odds stacked against him. He, he wouldn't have been impressive to the other Jews. He wouldn't have been impressive to the other Christians. Um, but his brother still saw his potential in the church. And there was Timothy being discipled by his family, by his church, by someone who's invested in him one-to-one, like Paul did. This is the biblical model of discipleship. The biblical shape of discipleship is the local congregation. But we each have an individual role to play in that, to disciple the person next to us. So how does this work again? Point one, be continually filled with the gospel. Keep drinking it in. Be praying on a daily basis. Be reading your Bible. Be filling up with Christ. Walk close with him. Know him personally. Then be filled so much that you overflow. You can't help but share it with other people. That they feel your love. They, they bump into you and they say, something's different about you. And they, they want to spend time with you. That's the second point. Now the third point. Be willing to be poured out in the process. It's kind of a paradox, right? We're being filled up all the time. Filled up, overflowing. And at the same time, this is how Jesus often taught, right? These things seem to be opposites. Yet, we're, we're poured out. We're willing to be completely spent. To, to maybe just be on our deathbed for Christ. Interesting paradox. Let's look into this some. And by the way, these first two points each had one verse in this passage. You know how many verses this third point has? Four verses. Verses 3 through 6. So what's the importance here? Paul is really focusing Timothy on the fact that hardships will come and he needs to keep doing the mission no matter what happens. 
So look at chapter 2, verse 3. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now you think hardship. Does it, does it have to be hardship? Can't we just hang out with those prosperity gospel people and everything's great and don't worry, you'll have a better house. Just keep coming to this nice cushy place and sitting in comfortable pews. Um, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus said, come follow me, right? And he said, he said if, you would, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's not just a slogan. He's saying, your life is going to be like, well, when I went to the cross and died for the cause. Take up your cross and follow me. Or we just read about it when, when uh, Jeremy read the Gospel of Mark. We saw that if anyone had left their, their homes or their families or their work for the cause, that's a lot to leave. A lot of us won't be necessarily called specifically to leave our homes and our families, but we may be called to make some sacrifices. And right in that same passage that in, in chapter 10 of Mark, it says that we'll be rewarded. So we give a lot, we're rewarded a lot. And then among with, along with those rewards, though, we also get persecution. How's that for a side dish? It's tough to follow the Lord. We're not called to this cushy thing where everything's going to be cozy, but we are called to follow the Savior of the universe and to get to go be with heaven, with him in heaven where it will be amazing. So, how does this work? You know, Paul taught the same thing. Look at 2 Timothy 3.12. Turn back to 2 Timothy if you're hanging out in Acts still. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? He, he, he said that right after reminding Timothy of him getting stoned in Lystra. And Paul didn't just, just teach this. He lived it, right? He endured that stoning, that, that brutal attempt to kill him. Or look at, at, at chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. So like Jesus and like Paul, we need to be ready to, give, ready to be willing to give all that we have to fight the fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith. You know, going back to our study passage, chapter 2, verse 3, Paul uses these same three similes, actually. He repeats them twice in the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy. The focused soldier is fighting the fight. The rule-abiding athlete is trying to finish the race first. The hard-working farmer is keeping the faith. So let's look at these three similes. First, we have the soldier. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. You know, on the battlefield, the good soldier is completely focused on the mission. Right? Just, just no matter what happens, getting it done. Bob Durfee is here, a helicopter pilot, captain in the Coast Guard. You know, when he was hovering that, that helicopter over the rescue scene, he was laser focused on doing it exactly right to rescue the person, right? That's what the soldier does. And even in peacetime, the soldier, when he's back home in training, back in the States, they're not out leading the protests against the government or anything like that, getting involved in civilian affairs. They're focused on their mission. They want to please their commanding officer. And similarly, the Christian must work to please his commanding officer and focus on our mission, no matter what happens. You know, the pastor is supposed to preach and preach the gospel. The worship team is supposed to lead us in worship as we all worship and focus on God's glory. That's what we're supposed to do. You know, in a similar way, we have the athlete. 
Right? Sort of like the soldier, the athlete is focused. Verse 5. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. So in both of these, there's a sense of striving for victory, right? But look at that last part. Unless he competes according to the rules. You know, here I think of Kevin Durant, a 22-year-old Christian basketball player who's in the playoffs right now, even though his team wasn't expected to be there. Um, despite his young age, he's, he's been the leading scorer in the NBA for two years in a row. Early in his career, he went to take a shot at the end of a game, you know, a big, important game, and he got fouled, or so it seemed, and he missed the shot, and the ref didn't call it. He was a little upset at first, but then in the press conference, he showed his maturity. He had been mentored, by the way, by his mom and by another fellow who took him under his wing. And his character shone when he said to the, to the press, it wasn't a foul because the ref didn't call one. That's the rules in basketball, by the way. The bottom line definition of a foul in basketball, I don't, I don't really like fouls in basketball. I don't understand them. It never seems fair. But Kevin Durant gets it. It's like, well, if the ref calls it, it's a foul. And if he doesn't call it, it's not. He's playing by the rules. And he's doing really well. He didn't do quite so well last night. I think his team lost. But, um, but he's doing well. And he's following the rules. That's what athletes do. They follow the rules. And similarly, the good Christian must follow the rules. Right? What, where are God's rules? Right here. You've got to play by the rules and follow God's strategy like we're studying in 2 Timothy. The strategy for one person, training another person, preparing them to train another person. We've got to pay attention to God's playbook. And follow the rules. And then we have the farmer. What's he doing here, right? It feels a little out of place. I don't know about you, but when I read that, uh, you know, it says the hardworking farmer in there. He, must, he should be the first one to receive a share of the crops. Um, it's a little tricky to understand. Why is this here? Well, partly, I think, because Paul is reiterating over and over again to Timothy how important this concept is of to be willing to suffer, like the soldier, like the athlete, and like the farmer. We used to live in upstate New York, right around some dairy farms. And that's a hard life they have there. I remember one time driving uh, to uh, my, my work about five in the morning. And I came upon, I went around this curve. And fortunately, I wasn't going real fast because there was just all these cows crossing the road. The farmer was up and at them before four o'clock in the morning uh, doing his thing. And he was, I'm sure, up late that night milking the cows and living a hard life, all focused on producing a crop. And then there's a the sweetness when the crop comes in, right? Because you worked hard. I keep feeling like I'm going to fall through here. What's up? Um, You know, we really deserve to have, have fruit after we work really hard, right? For the Christian, this is true as well. In 3 John, don't turn to it, but in, in the, book, the letter of 3 John, verse 4, it says, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And I think of Chris Hemrick when I read this. Chris is going to be moving on to another pastoral role soon. And, and you know, I think he must feel this when he looks at the Facebook pages of the, the, the young uh, students that he's invested in and sees evidences of their faith as they grow up. Some of our youngsters have gone off to Gordon College and doing great things. Some of you are in, here in the room here who sat under Chris's teaching, and, and you're following the Lord in your various ways. That's a sweet feeling when you're involved in ministry to see fruit coming up. Sometimes it takes a while, but we wait and we see it. I think of Pastor Glenn Evans who's here with us, who invested in this church as your pastor for, for a long time. I think it was in the 70s maybe. And he's here... Uh, probably enjoying the joy of seeing the church that he pastored continuing 30 or 40 years later. Um, there's a sweetness to that. And so it is for us too personally to invest in ministry and see the fruit. We're to be filling up with Christ and the grace and the truth and hope. We're to be overflowing to others. And we're to even be willing to be spent, to be fully spent 
but counting on that promise that it's going to be a sweet feeling when we see other people walking with the Lord because we gave our lives. I see Pat Devine here giving her life for the cause, translating the Bible over in Africa, giving her life, spending her life, being fully poured out for a great mission. And it's a bittersweet thing. But in the end, it's very sweet to know that people are going to go to heaven because of our work. So I want to do a little experiment with you now. We're going to try to pass out some handouts here. And I want you to get a feeling of what it's like to get the guy, to receive the gospel and then to give the gospel. Because this is how the kingdom of God spreads. So what I'm going to ask you to do now is if you receive this packet of papers, I want you to take one. I want you to make sure that people right around you have one. And then I want you to pass it back. And imagine your row is like a generation. And your job is to make sure your generation is reached and then to pass it on to the generation behind you. So, Jim, take these. Take one. Make sure everybody gets one in your row and behind you. And here's some more stacks. There you go. And take one and make sure people have them and pass them back. We'll do the same on the other side. And hopefully the Lord has provided uh, loaves and fishes upstairs and they'll get back there somehow too. There you go. So take one. Pass one to the side either direction and then pass it to the row behind you. This is how discipleship happens. It's kind of a messy process. You know, I have to have faith that those first people I handed those sheets of paper to will be faithful. I have to have faith that they're awake, um, that they heard some instructions, that they don't just stick them all in the pew rack in front of them. I have to have faith in the person that made the copies, that they made enough copies, that they'll reach the back. Faith in the people up in the balcony that it's really going to happen. You know, there may be somebody that gets missed here. That can happen. And in discipleship, we all have a responsibility, too, to speak up and say, hey, I, I, need, I need help. We can't just go into a church and say, feed me, feed me, uh, and just sit back. We have work to do. And when, some, when we don't get what we need, we need to be lovingly um, asking people to help us. So the gospel spreads from one generation to the next. It moves further and further back, expanding the kingdom of God. And we've got a role to play in that. This sheet of paper I'm giving you has the gospel on it on one side. You may not recognize the strange-looking language on the one side. But I want to focus you right now on the side of that that has a picture of a fountain. You know, that kind of connects to what we're talking about today. It's a picture of a pitcher pouring into a basin that's pouring into another basin that's pouring into another basin. That's how discipleship works. And I want you to think about for a few minutes as we apply this passage of Second Timothy to our lives. How does this work? What does it look like? Well, the handout asks two basic questions, right? One question is, who has been a discipling influence in your life? Has there been a Lois and a Eunice in your family? Mother, a father, grandparent, uncle, somebody who's taken time to help you follow the Lord? Or have there been people in the church setting who have helped you, who have been, been uh, teachers in Sunday school or guides in another way, t- helping you, uh, these young children who have memorized these verses? Somebody encourage them to do that and help them grow. Now they've got these verses planted in their minds, right? Right, man? They've got these verses that they know because somebody invested in them. Who's done that for you? Or maybe in, just personally, somebody just came alongside and started to teach you in your workplace or they handed you a tract on the street or whatever. Who has that been for you? And maybe for some of you, you're saying, it hasn't happened. I'm just visiting today. What are you talking about? Um, I would encourage you to ask someone to help you understand this gospel that we're talking about. Or if you're, you're just feeling stuck in your walk with the Lord or you're feeling ill-equipped to train the next person, ask someone to come alongside you 
and, and just teach you and help you grow. There's people in this room who have done that. I've had the blessing of doing that with a few people here in this room. Just walking alongside them, helping them learn the ropes and getting them ready to teach the next person. And speaking of teaching the next person, who could you help grow? Who could you help in their walk with the Lord? What could that look like? Perhaps someone who doesn't know the gospel. Perhaps someone who's just curious and has questions. Let me give you a couple quick snapshots of what this could look like. How about a mom or a dad who makes time day by day to pray and read their Bible and drink in God's Word themselves so that in those teachable moments that arise when you don't expect them, they're ready to point their children toward God? Or how about the student who reads the Bible and prays right before they go to bed at night and fills up with God's Word and then the next day in school is equipped to share something about God with a friend or post something on their Facebook page that, that impacts somebody? Or how about someone who just really drinks in the gospel and learns it well, and so when they're in their workplace and someone is maybe broken because there's some health challenges going on in their family, they have questions. Or like last night I was with two neighbors, with a couple of neighbors, and they were asking about this whole Harold Camping thing. And there I was, needing to be able to share the gospel. That's how this kind of stuff can happen. Maybe a small group Bible study leader who just focuses on their flock, that little group of people that meet in their living room, and helping them not just feel good, but really making sure that each person knows how to pray, knows how to read their Bible, knows how to use their ministry gifts. Maybe that leader invites someone to be their sort of apprentice and help them lead the group next year. That's disciple-making in action in its various forms. And each of us, just like we each received a piece of paper and handed it to someone else, each of us has a role to play in this disciple-making. So who could you help? We have a gospel to share. We have disciplines to teach. Who's your Timothy or maybe your Tammy if you're a, a woman? Write that name in that bottom box. Who could you reach out to or be praying for? Who do you know that doesn't know the gospel? You know, I believe each one of us is uniquely positioned to share the gospel in a certain way with certain people. Here's an example of that. Last Thanksgiving, my family and I hosted some Chinese uh, exchange students, grads, engineering grad students who were going to school in New York City. We had a great time with them. In fact, they came here to church on the Sunday um, and it was, it was really a lot of fun. I was surprised they had a lot of questions about God. I wasn't expecting that. Um, they also had a lot of questions about MIT. That's where I went for my undergraduate. And they were just so curious about MIT. And uh, uh, so I thought, well, let's just go up and check out the campus. So we, we, we drove up there Thanksgiving morning, and a lot of the classrooms were open. It was kind of fun. We went into the classrooms. We took some pictures, pretending they were students in the class at MIT that could show their friends. Um, and when we got home, I got this idea. I thought, you know, I wonder if I could translate the gospel into calculus for them. I wonder if there's a way to do that. So I played around a little bit and came up with a way to do it. And it's on your handout here. At my kitchen table, I sat with them and I showed them the gospel in calculus, the language they spoke, the international language of all engineers, right? Right, John? <laughs> right? So here's, here's a 50-second primer on, on the gospel in calculus. So these guys, by the way, on the drive home have been talking about, for some reason, only engineers can do this, right? They're talking about the gravitational constant G. So I'm thinking, okay, well, you know that God has sort of this constant. It's his perfect standard. So there's your capital letter G there. God's perfect standard, a life with no sin, right? And by the way, it's approximately equal to infinity. So good luck reaching it, right? All right. And then, and then there's me. I am much, much less than G, God's perfect standard. I can't reach it. 
In fact, to you throw a little engineering language at you, if I integrate my life over, say, 100 years, from zero to 100, add up every morsel of good I ever did and every morsel of sin I ever did, there's no way I can reach God's perfect standard. I'm still much, much less than it. So what can enable me to reach God's perfect standard? In that math equation, the integral of me over 100 years plus X equals God's perfect standard. What is X? Well, Jesus Christ, who lived for 33 years of sinless life and gave his life for our sin, died on a cross, raised from the dead, is equal to God's perfect standard. So guess what? If I add that to my life, or let him add me into his equation, if you will, then the equation is balanced. That's the only way. Jesus Christ. And you know what was really cool? So after I shared that, one of the guys, they were like excited, and he said, we understand this. That's exactly what he said. I was like, wow, that's really cool. And a couple of days later, we were at North River at the little banquet they had. And some other kid comes up to me and says, I have your equation. And some other kid. That was pretty cool. In fact, I was in Hoboken visiting that fellow. I decided to follow up with these guys. And I visited him in Hoboken. And, and we're walking through the streets of Hoboken. Grace told me we had to visit the Cake Boss, which is in Hoboken, New York. So we're looking for the Cake Boss shop. And, and who do we bump into on the street? A guy named Joe who first thing he says to me is, I still have your equation. That's who I bumped into in Hoboken, randomly, right, randomly. And then I, I went to Manhattan the next day, and I, I had lunch with the other fella. You know what he told me? He said, you know, when I went back to China to see my parents, I brought your equation with me. And I showed it to my mom, and she didn't get it. But he said, I showed it to my dad. He's an engineer. And uh, he, he, he liked it. And he said, your host family really cared for you. <laughs> so the gospel spread by an engineer. You know, I was four years at MIT to learn how to write this one equation, I guess. <laughs> um, and, you know, it went to Hoboken. And it went to China. Go figure, right? And that's my little thing, right? That's my cool story I can tell my grandkids someday. But each of us is wired to be able to communicate with certain people in certain ways. So how are you going to do that? It may take some translating. It may take some work. It definitely takes some love. But we have to pass along the gospel. And one final application of the passage. Pastor Paul telling Pastor Timothy to raise up pastors. We as a church, this, this, this letter is a letter to Jeremy and Seth and others to say to them, raise up more pastors. Train up pastors and send them out to start new churches. So we have to help them do that. We have to encourage them in doing that. Have budget for that. Encourage them as they have preaching conferences as they have, have uh, interns they're raising up. That's a vision of our church, and you need to encourage the, the pastors to keep doing that and support them in that. And some of you need to be those protégés. Some, some of you need to come, raise your hand and say, help me learn to, to, to teach the Bible more. Help me learn to walk with God better so I can export it to others. Are you willing to do that? It would take a sacrifice, but you know what? to reach the whole South Shore, the two million people that are around us who don't have a yellow sheet of paper in their hand, it's going to take more than just us and it's going to take some of us sacrificing. Ask God if he wants you to step up and be trained for ministry. So as I close now, I do want to just express my appreciation to the church. We've been here for 12 years. It's been a wonderful time here and we've had some great opportunities to lead some ministries, to be taught by some of you, to now for me to serve as an elder for a few years. It's been a real blessing. Some of you have been mentors to me. Been, I've been kind of like a protege. You know, Jeremy, Seth, and others have invested in me and in my family. 
Um, and, you know, to you who have let me be a Timothy, to your Paul, I say thank you. Thank you. And on the flip side, some of you I've gotten to be a Paul for in some ways, right? I've gotten to be a little bit of a mentor to share with you some of what I've learned and pass it on to you. And to you, um, you know, I just want to encourage you to take what we've just studied to heart and go and make disciples. Spread this gospel and be willing to be alongside someone else as a Sunday school teacher, as a one-to-one disciple maker, as a small group leader who pays attention to the spiritual growth of their flock. And, you know, maybe the best words I could use to summarize how I feel about that is to use Paul's words. So listen to my heart as I, as I remind you of Paul's words to Timothy. Because what did Paul say to Timothy? Well, something like, You then, my friends, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men, in your case, in female's case, women, who will be qualified to teach others also. <clears throat> and I lost the third verse, right? Don't you hate when that happens? <clears throat> Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Anyone serving as a soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, an athlete competes in order to win the prize, in order to win that crown, right? The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, and the Lord will give you insight into all this. Let's close with a brief prayer. Father, thanks for your word that teaches us. Thanks for your challenge to each one of us personally and corporately as a whole church to go and make disciples of all nations. Help us to do that, Father, to bring you glory, to reach this south shore which is full of people that lost souls who don't know Jesus Christ. If the end comes tomorrow, there are many people who won't be walking with you, Lord. Help us to reach them with the gospel. Help us to bring you glory as we do it. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.